Welcome to Truth and Charity with Bishop Rhodes, brought to you in part by Notre Dame Federal Credit Union. Today, we celebrate the first Native American to be canonized, St. Kateri Tekakwitha. Hear more about this 17th century saint from a Mohawk village in upstate New York. She converted to Catholicism as a young adult and gave a powerful example of following God's will despite hostility and illness. Then Bishop takes a closer look at missionary work among the Native Americans, its past, present, and future. Welcome to Truth and Charity with Bishop Rhodes. I'm Kyle Hyman here with our good Bishop. Thank you again for joining us. You're welcome, Kyle. How are you today? I'm doing great. Today is the feast day of St. Kateri Tekawitha. There's an extra K in there that I, I missed. Yeah, Tekakwitha. Tekakwitha. Yeah. A fairly recently canonized saint. Yeah, you know, when I was a student in Rome, I was at her beatification. Oh, okay. Um, I think it was in 1980. And um, there were a lot of Native Americans from the United States who were there for the beatification uh -huh. by St. John Paul II. What I remember especially is the day after the beatification, we had a big mass of Thanksgiving in the chapel at the North American College. And I was the MC, the Master of Ceremonies. Okay. And it was celebrated by Cardinal Kroll of Philadelphia. But I remember... Um, a lot of the Native Americans who came and, and the deacon, I believe, of the mass even had the, you know, wore the traditional Native clothes and carried up the gospel. It was all very moving and very beautiful. So Kateri was then canonized several years later. And I can't remember, I believe she was canonized. Yeah, she was canonized by Pope Benedict at St. Peter's in 2012. There have been various miracles attributed to her intercession, and she's a pretty popular saint with our young people. A number of the girls will choose her name for confirmation, which I always notice, and really a beautiful life. I think sometimes people might see Native American and Catholicism seem to be maybe two different cultures, two different faith backgrounds. Is there a discrepancy between the two? No, because really Catholicism is really, and the Christian faith is beyond any one culture. You know, the church is universal. So therefore, obviously, earlier on, it was very heavily stamped by European culture. And a lot of us, you know, are descendants of immigrants from Europe. But even in the early uh, centuries, the church was in Africa and in the Middle East and into Asia. So enculturation has always been a part of the life of the church, that the gospel becomes enculturated in various ethnic cultures. Also with the Native Americans, I think there's a lot more sensitivity today to respecting the good things in Native cultures. Mm -hmm. And missionaries today would be very conscious of that, that there's a respect for the good things in culture. And we see that enculturation, for example, in the liturgy and spirituality and art. Native American Catholics in the United States today, for example, who value their culture, et cetera, will bring in the cultural elements into their faith. So really true missionaries and evangelists don't go to countries to destroy their cultures. Mm -hmm. No, when that happens, that's wrong. 
Um, now, there are elements of cultures, human cultures, that need to be purified by mm-hmm. the light of the gospel. If a culture, for example, practices human sacrifice, that's sure. a moral evil. No human culture is perfect. So the gospel purifies culture, but it doesn't destroy culture. You know, we respect the language and, and the good things in various ethnic cultures. So do you mind sharing a little bit of St. Kateri's story? Oh, be happy to. Um, she lived in the 1600s and born in a Mohawk village. She was of the Mohawk tribe. The village was in present-day New York State. As a young girl, there was a bad epidemic of smallpox, and she contracted smallpox, and it left her face very scarred. And her family died, her parents and her brother died of smallpox. So she was left an orphan. Her uncle took care of her and he was not Christian. Her mother had been Christian and and taught her, but she hadn't been baptized. Uh, Eventually, she really wanted to remain single. And of course, that was countercultural for the Native Americans. And even though there was a lot of pressure for her to get married, and they would have been married at a very young age, 12, 13, 14 years old, she resisted that. She eventually became Catholic. She was baptized when she was 19 years old, and that's when she got the name Kateri, and that was in honor of St. Catherine of Siena. After she converted, she left her village and went to a more Catholic village, which is in present-day Canada, south of Montreal, on the St. Lawrence River, and there her Christian faith was nourished because it was basically a Christian village. The village that she had been in, where she had grown up, you know, they were pretty hostile to Christianity. So it's really amazing. She learned the Catholic faith from a Jesuit priest, a missionary, and she was just very moved by stories about Jesus and what she heard from the gospel. And because of the opposition, though, to her conversion, she went up to this village in Canada, which had a a Catholic mission for the Native Americans. She was known for her kindness. She was very devoted to the Blessed Sacrament. She was very committed to a life of chastity. She did a lot of penances, sometimes uh, mortifications that were excessive, and the the priests had to instruct her that, you know, she shouldn't Hmm. be doing harm to herself. In any event, she died very young. She was 24 years old. And one of the amazing things is moments after her death, many witnesses saw her face glowing with light and the smallpox marks, those scars on her face disappeared after she died. So obviously reports of that uh, spread and people would come and pray at her uh, grave. And, you know, there were a lot of healings. It's really amazing. I mean, when you think about it, she was only Christian for, you know, for four or five years before she died. Uh, And yet she's the first Native American to be canonized. And they called her the Lily of the Mohawks. You know, Lily, the flower, the Lily is a symbol of chastity. So they call her the Lily of the Mohawks. It's interesting to also, I mean, we could get into some of the various Indian nations and tribes, but the Mohawks were part of the five nations of the Iroquois, which 
were pretty hostile to the missionaries. For example, we know the Jesuit priests, St. Isaac Jogues and his companions, they were they were martyred. This was before the time of Kateri Tekakwitha because the French were more allied to the Huron Indians and they were enemies of the Iroquois. So there was a lot of wars, battles between the Hurons and the Iroquois nations. So Kateri was part of the Mohawks, which was part of the Iroquois. So that's why when she converted, there was a lot of opposition. But to be honest, the Jesuits uh, went into the Iroquois areas, Mohawk lands, etc., uh, to bring the gospel, even though, you know, there were uh, there was more missionary success among the Hurons. Franciscans were also major missionaries to Native Americans in different parts of the United States, whether it's Florida or the Southwest, California. Of course, we're familiar with another saint, uh, Junipero Serra. Uh, Franciscan who established the missions in California and uh, was canonized by Pope Francis in Washington, D.C. when he was here for a papal visit a few years ago. And it's a lot of controversy these days about the missionary efforts and missionary works among the Native Americans. And I think that's something that we need to address and with honesty uh, and historical accuracy. Mm. There were a lot of crimes against the native peoples, whether we're looking at Mexico or South America, North America. But for the church, the plight of the Native Americans was always very important. The missionaries, when you read and, and when it's real authentic, honest history, you find the missionaries defending the Native Americans. And sometimes we, you know, they're lumped together with these uh, colonial powers, whether it's France or England or Spain, but it's kind of unfair to blame the church or the Jesuits or the Franciscans or others for some of the things that happened because it was people like the famous friar Bartolome de las Casas saw the harm being done to native peoples being enslaved by Spanish conquerors. And he spoke out very, very strongly against it. And back in the 16th century, even before in early part of the missionary times, Pope Paul III declared that the Indians should not be deprived of their liberty or the possession of their property. And even though they weren't Christian, at least at the beginning, that they their dignity needed to be respected. Now, that's not to say that every effort was good, but I think we sometimes forget that a lot of the Native Americans who became Catholic, they loved their priests and they became very devout in their faith. We see that here in our own diocese. You know, the Potawatomis up in the South Bend area or the Miami Indians in the Fort Wayne area. And we see the affection that they had for the missionaries. And even when there was the expulsion, for example, of the Potawatomi, you know, they wanted their priests to go with them as they went on the Trail of Tears. And I think I've spoken before about Father Benjamin Petit, who provided the sacraments and, and consoled the people as they were forced to migrate. And he accompanied them. Mm -hmm. And of course, he died on that journey. He's buried under the log chapel at, at Notre Dame. So there was this encounter between these traditional indigenous cultures and the European colonists that really was in many ways a harsh and a painful thing. 
there was cultural oppression. There were injustices. And we have to acknowledge them. But, but we need to be objective and say, well, there were positive aspects too, especially when you see the many missionaries who defended the rights of the Native Americans and those who established missions. They worked to improve the living conditions. They set up schools and educational systems. And they would learn the language of the Native peoples so they could proclaim the gospel to them. And a lot of those missions are still in place today. Yes, there are. Now, there was, you probably saw in the news up in Canada, and I don't know that there's been a lot of historical research on the schools in the United States that were for Native American children. But up in Canada, you saw probably in the news, they discovered these graves of children at these Indian schools. They were managed by the Canadian government, but then they were staffed by a lot of Catholic religious orders or some Protestant groups. And they talk about the mistreatment. You know, these children were taken from their families and put in these schools, which is obviously a violation. But as far as the situation in the United States with the schools, I, to be honest, I don't know. I haven't really read much about it, if it was the same kind of system. But certainly today, we know the Catholic schools and missions, especially on Indian reservations, are really appreciated by the Native American peoples. Mm -hmm. Do you know, have any idea like how many of those might still be around in the United States? I don't. But, you know, remember at the recent USCCB meeting, the bishops approved the development of a new statement and vision for Native American ministry. And I was really happy about that. And I think we'll, we'll learn when that's prepared. I know that a lot of the Native American Catholics today, the great majority live in cities. Mm. not on reservations. So there's a higher population in urban areas. So Native Catholic ministry today is not just on reservations, but for the schools that you're talking about, they're generally on reservations. And I'm anxious to learn more about that. And what this document that the U.S. bishops will, will do, it'll be um, one of the committees of the bishops We'll be looking at some of the history and certainly inspiration of St. Kateri Tekakwitha and her role in the faith of our Native American Catholics, but also the needs today, the challenges for our, our Native communities and Native peoples. So that document will look on our works of evangelization and social service and education among the Native Americans today. I think it's pretty neat, though, that we have these examples of Native American saints and holy men and women like St. Kateri. I think we talked on this program about Servant of God, Nicholas Black Elk. Right. Also, there's another cause, the, the Martyrs of Florida. So there have been many gifts to the church from our Native American Catholics. And they're not just ministered to, but they're part of their ministry within the church and their example and the particular gifts they bring from their cultures. For example, the respect for the environment. All right. Well, we're going to continue to talk about the life of St. Kateri, what we can learn from her example. But a reminder, if you have questions for Bishop, you can go to RedeemerRadio.com slash AskBishop. There's a little form you can fill out there. Or just text the Holy Cross College text line at 260-436-9598. And we'll talk about following God's will and resisting pressure from others and more coming up on Truth and Charity with Bishop Rhodes. Brought to you in part by Notre Dame Federal Credit Union. 
Notre Dame Federal Credit Union has a special mission to serve the Catholic Church in America. In 2020 alone, we've served over 800 parishes, schools, and nonprofits in more than 25 dioceses nationwide. We are a member-owned, not-for-profit cooperative, working hard to create a national Catholic financial alternative to the for-profit banks. You already share our values. Why not share in our benefits? Notre Dame Federal Credit Union. Welcome back to Truth and Charity with Bishop Rhodes. I'm Kyle Hyman here with our bishop. We've been talking about St. Kateri Tekakwitha. And one of the things that you had mentioned when you were kind of going through her biography was that she was exercising mortifications. Yes. Which I imagine to a certain degree is a good thing, but there's a point where you said the, the priest had to intervene and, and kind of say, hey, this isn't healthy anymore. And I just kind of wondered if that's something that maybe, you know, people listening might struggle with that as well. But we see this with other saints of this almost a perfectionism and holiness of wanting to do whatever it takes. So she wanted to devote her life completely to God. She didn't want to be married. She wanted to be a hundred percent dedicated to God and, you know, doing whatever it takes and including these mortifications and maybe kind of going a little too far. Yeah. Is it, is that something that we see in holy people that uh, maybe, a Maybe is there a little bit of an OCD component to that or? Well, I, I, you know, it's interesting. I think sometimes you see like excessive fasting or excessive mm-hmm. mortification, even in some of the saints because of their zeal. Yeah. So there, there's an importance of respecting the body mm-hmm. and not doing harm to oneself that's going to affect negatively affect one's health or one's life. Mm-hmm. And I've had to deal with that with some people too. Like I remember giving some direction to someone who was doing fasting that was excessive mm-hmm. and the person was getting health difficulties. And I would say, this isn't pleasing to God. We're to glorify God by our bodies. So, so you have to always be careful of extremes. Yeah. Now, in the case of St. Kateri, there was a custom, even before she became Christian, even among the Native Americans at that time, some would pierce themselves with thorns as a thanksgiving for some good or as an offering for oneself or, or the needs of others. And Kateri would lie on a mat with thorns. Even other things that she did, uh, she had a spiritual counselor who encouraged her in these penances. And she was happy to take them up. But, you know, she was in poor health. I mean, she had had smallpox, you know. So some of these things weren't good for her and it made her weaker. So basically then she got scolded by the priest, said, no, no, don't go that far with your Mm -hmm. penances. You have to have moderation. And I think the priest made her go to him for approval before she would do any kind of penance. So so basically what happened then, she only did the penances that the priest would allow her to do and nothing more. Okay. But yeah, I, mean, I don't see that too much today, but I've had to deal with it a few times. Like I mentioned, someone mm-hmm. who was doing, who was insisting on doing this rigorous fasting you know, it also affects, not only can be harmful to one's body, but this particular person who I was giving advice to was working for the church. And of course, this was even hurting their work for the church because they were getting weaker. Mm. They would, you know, have. So I said, listen, what you're doing 
you know, you're called to be a servant and this is hurting your service because you're too tired or you're not feeling well. I said, this is not good. This kind of sacrifice is excessive. So yeah, it's an interesting phenomenon. Even on a on a more minor level, I've heard of people who, you know, skipping a meal or something like that makes them short tempered and then they're angry with their kids or their spouse, you know, and like, okay, maybe that isn't the right sacrifice for you. And so maybe just being aware of our Right. Of our limits and, and our own bodies and, and how we respond to different things and what might be a, a healthy sacrifice for one person might not be for another. Right. And then, of course, this is not to say that penance and mortification isn't good because it is. It's probably neglected a lot today, right. you know, to do penance, to, to do some mortifications, but always prudently mm-hmm. and in moderation. And like you said, looking at how it is affecting one's primary vocation. Right, right. Another thing about St. Kateri's life that I think is is interesting is how she really seemed to have to fight some of her, maybe family even. Maybe, maybe her mom was very supportive of her, her being Christian, but whenever she passed away, then her uncle, you know, and then wanting her to get married, but her feeling not called to that. And eventually having to, didn't she have to leave to Canada at some point to kind of? Well, that's after her conversion when she went up to the Christian mission up there near Montreal. But you're right. I mean, her mother and father had already died, but it was when she was being taken care of by her uncle and other family members, you know, more extended family, her aunts as well. They were all trying to pressure her to Mm -hmm. marry. And she just resisted that. And also the people of the village that she was living in at that time, both before she was baptized and afterwards. I mean, she was a good girl, behaved very well even before her conversion. She was trying to be holy. She was learning more about the gospel. As I mentioned, she was 19 when she was baptized. She was baptized on Easter Sunday in 1676. And then she stayed for six months in that village, but she had these other Mohawk members of her tribe who opposed her conversion. They accused her even of sorcery. Mm. So that's when the priest suggested that she go to this Jesuit mission south of Montreal, which is what she did. There were other Native American converts up there. Uh, There were religious sisters up there. And really there she was able to live with more support for her faith. Yeah, and she was just a beautiful example there. I mean, the priests who wrote about her were recognized her holiness even at the time. They were impressed by her and her piety. And they thought, you know, we have a, a saint here among us. And her fortitude, her purity, all these different virtues that she had. But her health failed, as I mentioned, and the villagers gathered together with the priests and She received the last rites, and reportedly she died in the arms of one of her friends, Maria Therese, and she said, Jesus, Mary, I love you. And then the people noticed when she died that that, her face that had all the scars and everything and the marks within a quarter of an hour after her death became beautiful, and the scars disappeared. So I guess that is another lesson for us and a takeaway for when there's pressure for you to do something and you feel God's calling you to something else. She really didn't give in to that, you know, and whether that be, you know, friends or media or family members, sometimes it can be difficult to 
go against the grain and do what God's calling you to do. But it, it must have been difficult because she was kind of going against her culture, maybe her uncle, you know, other family members, and trying to do what God's calling her to. Exactly. She went against the, her culture only in the sense of the the negative parts of the culture. She never rejected her Native American roots, but she really accepted the gospel purification of the culture. Well, and even some things that are positive things, like encouraging somebody to get married, like that's not necessarily a bad thing, you know, if, right. if that's what they're called to. Uh, but to pressure somebody into something that they're right. not called to. Right. But... Also, I guess another example, when she did go to Canada to find the supportive community that, you know, there is a time where we might need to separate ourselves from negative influences or just to find even where we belong. You know, if there's if there is a community that is going to help us grow in our faith or that we're able to help, you know, being a missionary or wherever it is to to be willing to step outside of our own environment and be willing to to try something else that, that God might be calling us to. Yeah. So lot, lots of different lessons from her life, I think. Yeah, I agree. And you know, the other thing I want to not forget is the um, those missionaries, the French Jesuit missionaries. And, you know, as I said, they were very successful among the Huron Indians, but they didn't give up on the Iroquois, including the Mohawks, mm. that even though there were several who were martyrs, they didn't stop their work of evangelization and Eventually, one of the chiefs of the Iroquois converted. So their ministry did bear fruit and they labored even amidst the dangers that they faced. And we could speak the same thing about the Franciscans in the Southwest and in California or in Florida or even various parts of the United States. Now, it's, it's interesting. We don't really have time to talk about it, but... It's interesting to look at the different policies of the different colonial powers. Of course, France, Spain, and then in the East Coast, Northeast, the English, and the different ways that the different colonial rulers treated the Native Americans. And then, as I said, how the missionaries among them would often be on the side of the Native Americans protecting them. I don't know if you know one of the the tribes up in New England, in Maine, were the Abenaki, which was a pretty large and powerful native nation that became Catholic. And that's, you know, part of huh. French America. But the British eventually took over and they banned Catholics from Maine. And the Abenaki Indians refused to accept the Protestant missionaries that were kind of imposed upon them and really remained faithful Catholics. They spoke with a lot of affection and gratitude for their priests, who they called black robes because of the cassocks. Uh -huh. So they never lost their commitment to the Catholic faith. So it's interesting to look at the different, as I said, in our own diocese, the Potawatomis and the, and the Miamis, but it's fascinating. I'd love to read more about this. There is, by the way, I wanted to mention a book that was published by OSV some years ago by Matt and Margaret Bunsen, Matt Bunsen, and his mother, Margaret. It's a biography of St. Kateri. It's just called that St. Kateri, Lily of the Mohawks. And it's probably about nine years ago this was published. And that's where I, you know, learned more about St. Kateri from reading that book. So it's still in print, I believe. So if any of the listeners want to read a story, it's always good to read Lives of the Saints. 
you might want to check this out. And it gives a good background, too, about the Native Americans and what was going on historically at the time. Because to understand the life of Kateri, you kind of have to understand the world that she was living in at the time. Yeah, it looks like a pretty thick book for what I assumed there wouldn't be a whole lot known about her, but looks like a very thorough yes. biography. Yep. I mean, part of it is about her legacy and cause for her and, and the process for her beatification and canonization at the last part of it. But but the first part of the book is really about the wilderness, the Native Americans, uh, the black robes. So kind of an overview of the society and the missionary work. And then the second part really gets into her life and, and what her life was like and her conversion, et cetera. And then the third part's on her legacy. Well, again, that's St. Kateri, Lily of the Mohawks by Dr. Matt Bunsen. And uh, I feel like with OSV, there's a 50-50 chance that Dr. Bunsen wrote the book. Like, <laughs> he's, he's got so many books that he's written. Yeah, he's but, very good. Very good. All right. Well, thank you for breaking this down for us a little bit and, and helping us to understand a little bit more about this culture. And like you said, the Catholic involvement, sometimes positive, maybe sometimes negative. Not that the Catholic Church was teaching to do anything oppressive, but sometimes people make bad decisions. Sometimes Catholics are lumped in with other people that are making bad decisions. I feel like this right. comes up like Thanksgiving or, you know, Christopher Columbus Day or, you know, people kind of get into this debate about the Native Americans and how people were treating them. And, you know, the, the th same thing, we talked about this before, even with slavery, but, uh, and the African Americans, but again, getting back, it was way back in 1537 that the Pope himself, Pope Paul III, declared that the Native Americans were not to be deprived of their liberty mm -hmm. or dispossessed of their property. You know, so I, I think that's important yeah. to remember. Now, unfortunately, some of the Spanish and French colonists didn't follow that, mm -hmm. you know, and they conquered the peoples and expelled them, but also the English too. But the church's teaching was clear. Yeah. And I think most of the missionaries really loved the Native American peoples whom they evangelized and whom they served in setting up missions and et cetera. And as I said, they tried to defend the rights of the Native Americans. Time and time again, treaties were broken, treaties between the U.S. government and the various Indian nations. And it was very, very sad. And they kept getting pushed further west and the Trail of Tears, et cetera, the setting up of reservations. So there were a lot of abuses. But I would say the church and her missionaries were really more on the side of, of what the church was teaching. Mm -hmm. Now, probably not all of them, but they learned the language and they tried to help with education and bettering their lives. And of course, bringing them the saving message of the gospel. And you mentioned a document that the USCCB is working on. Did you say when that is expected to, to come out? Well, it was just approved to move forward with it, to develop it. And this was a proposal from the Committee on Cultural Diversity in the Church. And I think they do have a timeline. And if I'm not mistaken, it's probably about two years. So that in November of 2023, I think we would have the document completed. All right. Well, thank you so much, Bishop, for another great episode. A reminder that if people have questions about this or any other topic, you can text the Holy Cross College text line at 260-436-9598. 
And before we go, could we get your Episcopal blessing? Sure. The Lord be with you. And with your spirit. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Now and forever. Our help is in the name of the Lord. Who made heaven and earth. May Almighty God bless you, the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Thank you, Bishop. You're welcome, Kyle. There's a link in the show notes to the book mentioned in this episode, St. Kateri, Lily of the Mohawks, written by Dr. Matthew Bunsen and Margaret Bunsen, published by Our Sunday Visitor. Truth in Charity with Bishop Rhodes is brought to you in part by Notre Dame Federal Credit Union. This show is a production of the Spoke Street Media Podcast Network. For more great podcasts, visit spokestreet.com.